20-Minute History is an independent operation made possible with the help of listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so through the Acast supporter feature linked in the episode notes, or by going to patreon.com slash 20minhistory. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. I'm David A. Bradbury, and this is 20-Minute History. On today's episode, we are attempting to do what 2018's The Greatest Showman failed to. Take a meaningful and critical look at one of America's most renowned entertainers. This is Season 1, Episode 4. Let's jump right in. Okay, real quick, before we get started, I do want to make it explicitly clear that although I've already taken a jab at The Greatest Showman, and likely will take a few more in a few minutes, this episode is not going to be a film review, because at the end of the day, the story that film tells is not really relevant to my retelling of Barnum's life. The briefest possible version of my thoughts are that I think the 2018 movie is overly simplistic, often to the point of revisionism, and indeed its misleading portrayal of Barnum is what inspired me to talk about him here, but I don't think any more needs to be said about it right now, because it's just not relevant. However, if you are interested in hearing more of my ramblings about it, I will be releasing a short bonus episode regarding media, morality, and historical revisionism as it pertains to Barnum very soon. So with that out of the way... Let's move on to the man himself. Saying that Phineas Taylor Barnum is the perfect self-made rags-to-riches entrepreneur character might be somewhat of an overstatement. To be clear, Barnum certainly ended life with a lot more money than he started it with, but his origins are a little less humble than one might think. Having been born on July 5th, 1810 to a family of means, young Phineas enjoyed many privileges in his early life, including attending a small one-room schoolhouse as well as a Presbyterian Sunday school. In fact, to hear Barnum himself tell the story in the conceitedly titled The Life of P.T. Barnum written by himself, he was quite adept in both settings. In the same book, he also recounts a trip to New York City with his father, as well as an anecdote regarding a dilapidated yet large property inheritance which his family called Ivy Island. If you ask me, it seems that Barnum was neither rich nor poor. Now, moving into adolescence and early adulthood, P.T. seemed to have a little bit more trouble with money, as he held a number of different jobs, including as an editor, general storekeeper, and lottery manager. That last one actually led him into an unfortunate circumstance by which he lost a great sum of money, forcing him to collect all of his belongings and move from Bethel, Connecticut to New York in order to, quote, seek my fortune. 
Apparently, this fortune-seeking didn't turn out so well at first as Barnum made most of his money by renting property, but no matter, his big break would come in an unexpected and rather controversial form. If you've encountered any history of P.T. Barnum that doesn't include Hugh Jackman and the prettiest of all boys, Zac Efron, you may have heard of a woman by the name of Joyce Heth. Though not much is known about her prior history, Heth was an elderly slave owned by the Kentucky-born man John S. Bowling before he officially sold her to the exhibitor R.W. Lindsay. Additionally, Heth was the subject of massive public attention and spectacle in no small part because of the claims made about her. Namely, Lindsay claimed her to be the 161-year-old former nurse of General George Washington. Jesus Christ. People from far and wide gathered to have a look at the woman who reportedly had no teeth, was blind, and partially paralyzed, and those people included P.T. Barnum, who saw Heth for himself in Philadelphia in 1835, immediately before proceeding to borrow $500 from a friend and purchase Heth for a grand total of $1,000, figuring that he could make a considerable sum from running the exhibit himself in New York. And make a considerable sum he did. Barnum brought crowds upon crowds of visitors to come see Joyce Heth by harnessing the power of the press. And when I say that, I don't just mean he paid for advertisements. Rather, I mean that he engaged in a number of more questionable exploitative tactics. As Barnum historian Bernd Lindforce details it, at one point Barnum started a new controversy surrounding Heth by penning an anonymous letter to a newspaper alleging that, get this, Heth wasn't human, and was in fact a non-human automaton, a puppet, if you will. And it actually worked. At the height of the exhibit, Barnum brought in $1,500 per week, a figure just shy of $40,000 today. You know, I hate to be the guy to slip into this line of thought. I really, really do, but... Fuck, you can't help but wonder if people back then were just more gullible. Regrettably, this kind of abuse isn't even the end of Heth's story, as Barnum found a way to profit off of her death by holding and selling tickets to a public autopsy, which, beyond proving that this woman was not, in fact, a robot, also demonstrated that she was likely half the age that Barnum claimed her to be. Now, in all fairness to Barnum, the entertainer would later claim in his 1855 book that he genuinely believed Heth to be Washington's former nurse and was just as surprised as the public upon hearing the results of her autopsy. Barnum put it this way, quote, If Joyce Heth was an imposter, who taught her these things? And how happened it that she was so familiar with the minute details of the Washington family? To all this, I unhesitatingly answer, I do not know. Whether Barnum genuinely believed those claims or was just trying to save face is up for debate, but in the long run, I really don't think that it matters much. As he would later admit, Barnum took pleasure in humbugging his audience, not in the least because his audience enjoyed being humbugged. From there, it was time for Barnum to join one Aaron Turner's circus with a number of more conventional circus performers, including stilt walker Signor Vivala, with whom Barnum had a prior history. 
And though this would definitely influence his path later in life, Barnum's own circus was not to be founded before he purchased Scudder's American Museum in December of 1841, curiously helping the purchase go through by promising the then-owner Francis W. Olmsted his inheritance at Ivy Island as security. The museum proved to be wildly successful, with Barnum at the helm diversifying the types of displays that a visitor could gaze at. As seems to be the case with the showman's legacy, some exhibits were more banal, including a large model of Niagara Falls. Others, less so. And that leads us into a little bit of a story time. So, in 1842, Barnum stayed one night in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and that is where he met a boy by the name of Charles S. Stratton, who was of interest to P.T. because he was a little person who had not grown substantially since he was six months of age. And before you get ahead of yourselves, I chose the word boy deliberately, but not because I intend in any way to denigrate people with dwarfism. No, Charles was a literal child. He was five at the time, but that didn't stop Barnum from employing him at his museum to the surprise of his mother and then lying about his age and dressing him up as General Tom Thumb. He then took the enterprise a step further when, in 1844, Barnum Stratton and Stratton's parents embarked on a tour of Europe. And yes, Greatest Showman fanboys, Stratton did actually appear before the Queen. Flashing forward in time a little bit, Barnum decided that after Tom Thumb and the Jenny Lind Opera Tour, he was done with normal entertainment and with exploiting children and little people. Now it was time for him to go back to his roots and take advantage of some more black people. Take the case of Zip, who was installed in Barnum's American Museum in 1859. Zip was also commonly referred to as the What is it, and despite being played by a microcephalic man named William Henry Johnson, also coincidentally from Bridgeport, Connecticut, he was marketed as an African savage. Now at this time I'd like to read you a little bit of an advertisement for Zip because there is literally no part of this that is even remotely redeemable, so I quote, Is it a lower order of man, or is it a higher order of monkey? None can tell. Perhaps it is a combination of both. It has a skull, limbs, and general anatomy of an orangutan and the countenance of a human being. I should hope I don't have to explain why this looks bad in retrospect, but here's Linfort's thoughts on it anyways. Quote, In the popular imagination which Barnum understood and exploited better than any other businessman, Africanness was equated with brutishness, imbecility, bestiality. In my own estimation, this means that if we grant Barnum the biggest benefit of the doubt and assume that he did not view Africans and Afro-Americans as brutish, bestial imbeciles, which he very well may have, then he at the very least did not mind taking advantage of those stereotypes to make a quick buck. Either way, Barnum doesn't come out of this story looking too good. The entertainer's last commercially successful enterprise is the one you're probably already somewhat familiar with, Barnum and Bailey's Circus. And despite this being his most enduring legacy, I am actually a lot less interested in that than I am with everything prior. And I think my explanation for why that is will make a fitting conclusion to this episode. If you know the first thing about P.T. Barnum, you already know about his traveling circus and the greatest show on earth. 
You know about the elephants, you know about the acrobatics, you know about the freak shows. Hell, maybe you even know a little bit about Tom Thumb since Stratton revived his performance of the general in the early years of Barnum's Circus. And to be clear, it's good that you're aware of all of this because to give P.T. Barnum his due, the enduring success of Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey Circus up until 2016, as well as the newest emergence of performances like Cirque du Soleil, stem at least in part from him. Barnum made his living in show, in advertising the spectacular and unimaginable, and you can still see the echoes of that legacy today. But if this is the only thing you know about P.T. Barnum, then I'm afraid you're missing out on a much more interesting and problematic past. And there are many reasons why I think more people should be more familiar with this history, not the least of which being that re-examining American history always reveals that its most influential characters, just like normal everyday people, were neither all good nor all bad. Instead, they lived in a vague gray area, and what's more, that examining the goods along with the bads leads to a more nuanced understanding of where we came from and how that led us to where we are today. Barnum deserves credit for his contributions to entertainment, sure, but we should also be willing to take an honest look at acts he promoted that make us want to cringe or, even worse, scream. And the fact that millions of people have recently praised media that skips over all of these less marketable beats? I'm not gonna lie, it's concerning to me. Because to rewrite a troubling history is, at least in part, to deny and undermine the plight of disabled people, black people, and the socially marginalized. And it's this exact trend that historians are rightly fighting against. P.T. Barnum wrote a few books and had a brief, modest political career in his later years before dying from a stroke in 1891 at the age of 80. His remains lie at the Mountain Grove Cemetery, Bridgeport, Connecticut. Thank you so, so much for listening to another episode of 20 Minute History. If you liked it, then please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating. You can also check us out on social media if you're looking for more content. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 20MINHistory. A very special thank you again to Bernd Lindfors, Benjamin Rice, Jackie Mansky, and the man himself, P.T. Barnum, whose writings helped me put together this episode. If you're interested, don't forget to check out our bonus episode coming out soon, and tune in next week for the story of a prophet so legendary that his story was immortalized in a Tony Award-winning musical. But until then, I've been David A. Bradbury, and please stay curious, keep reading, and never stop learning, lest you know what repeats itself. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.